Testies. Testies. Radio voice. I mean, you can worry about things like that all your life, but I mean, you can't change your voice, bro. That is not true. I guess you can, <laughs> you can change anything <laughs> all if right, you have enough please. money. Me, 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 yeah. me, me, me. Do, do. Did you know Stadler, he has perfect pitch. Perfect pitch. So you can throw a baseball well. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, give me a, give me a D sharp. <clears throat> Wait, he's got to calibrate. Hey, that's a D sharp. Fucking perfect. Fucking perfect. You knew it was a D sharp when you heard it, didn't you? Definitely. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Nailed it. From El Toro Studios, brought to you by ElToro.com, the only one-to-one, 100% cookie-free IP targeting solution. This is the Straight from the Bull podcast. Thank you for tuning in to the 11th episode of the ElToro.com podcast. I am David Stadler, sitting in for Kramer Caswell, who unfortunately was not able to be in with us today. I am sitting here with DJ Oz, Austin Whiteley, the one and only. And here today we have our guest, Nicholas Loki Jacobson. Oh my God, I just got the finger from him. Nobody calls him Loki. Except for my dead grandmother. Nicholas, please. That's totally inappropriate. Calm yourself. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So today, um, we have some adult beverage in front of us as well. Mm. Um, So, you know, before... I like to think that we helped Loki kind of get into the bourbon fold a little bit more than he had prior. Loki used to be a tequila man. Agave. Maybe a little bit of mezcal here and there. But today, he loves bourbon just like the rest of us. It's mm. God's yes, juice. Yes, I do. Mm, corn. So today, we are drinking on one of Nicholas Loki Jacobson's favorite bourbons. <laughs> probably second favorite bourbon, if I recall correctly. Johnny Drum Private Stock. We can't actually get a soundbite, so I apologize to our tens of listeners today. Uh, we mm-hmm. do not have a cork in this bottle, but rest assured, this hooch is tasty. One of the things I like most about this, and I don't know if anybody else does, but uh, anytime I can get a bottle of good booze for less than 50 bucks, I'm in. It's a good day. And this stuff is $35. Um, it comes from the Willet Distillery. And one of the things that Austin and I were talking about earlier, you know, the only the only bourbon you said you had at your house was Willet, right? Oh, yeah. This comes from the Willet Distillery, and one of the first things I noticed when I tasted this is it finishes like Willet. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it tingles in a good mm-hmm. kind of way as it's going down the back of your throat. So Willet Distillery from Bardstown, Kentucky. It smells a little bit fruity. But in my opinion, it's it's overwhelmingly oaky. Anybody else take any other notes from the nose here? No, just, it wraps up nicely though. Yeah, you know. yeah. I, I I smell it. You know, I taste a little bit of that fruit on the front side that I was smelling earlier. We were talking earlier, and it's not just because I always say something tastes like caramel. Mm, buttery, buttery. <laughs> it does taste a little bit like caramel here, and I get a lot of spice as that sip kind of finishes. And you know, like we said earlier. Will it, it kind of tingles a little bit when it finishes on the outside of your tongue. And I, I like that. I mean, if you're new to bourbon, pick up a Willet. Yeah. It's going to go down nice, nice and easy. There's no harsh. It's not going to, it's not necessarily a rye or anything like that. So yeah. it's a nice introduction. But I do like that finish. I mean, what do you like so much about it? I mean, you're, you're the guy who, you know, carts it back in suitcases. I, 
Oh wait, is that that's not against the law, is it? We, no, we don't break no. laws. As long as it's for personal use, it's fine, right? Okay, cool, cool. Yeah. So you take a lot of bourbon back with you, uh, the stuff that you can't I, find. I do. I can't. There's quite a bit of bourbon you can find out here that you can't find back in Oregon, and eh, about three bottles every time I travel works about well. I like slowly sipping my bourbon. It just has a really good taste over the tongue when it's floating on top of the tongue. Mm-hmm. Doesn't burn too bad going down and leaves a good aftertaste. Dig it. So when you're not drinking Johnny Drum, and if you guys ever see the eltoro.com website, his favorite bourbon is Stag Jr., George T. Stag Jr. Now, why aren't we drinking that today? Oh, because that's what you end with. After, <laughs> after I drink that, I'm not drinking anything else. Okay. There's no more interview after that. <laughs> mm. And, and it, for those that aren't that familiar, I mean, we got a very high proof statement on some George T. Stagg Jr. I, I want to say it's 63.5%. Like, you kidding? No. Mm. Oh, damn. Something like that. That's legit stuff. You drink that when you mean it. I'm not driving home that <laughs> night. Call the but. Uber. This is 50.5, I think. Is it? Yeah. yeah. You're still getting it. It didn't taste like it, though. No, no it really but it's 101 proof. Yeah. I dig it. Uh, hopefully, this room will smell a little bit like bourbon. So, when you and Marty <laughs> get in here tomorrow morning, you're like, good God, is that my pores? <laughs> oh, it's usually, usually what's said. <laughs> All right. So, Loki is a, I'd, I'd call him a man of mystery. Yeah, I don't. I personally, I don't even know what he does. It's it's this <laughs> ambiguous cloud floating around. Loki is one of our lead system architects here. What what is your job title specifically? I, um, well, besides like mischief maker, <laughs> uh, I I think my job title is still officially just developer. Okay. Yeah. Um, that works. Yeah. Yeah. It, Trying to classify into job titles is always a confusing issue. On LinkedIn, principal engineer. Ooh. Who wrote, who wrote this one down? That's nice. I think that might have been MZ. <laughs> Loki has 12 years of experience as a software developer and architect. He currently specializes in data analytics, um, but he's always worn a bit of a security hat as well. Um, so one of his hobbies is he's interested in GSM. He's been involved in that here for probably the past five, six years. He actually started his professional career writing scripts around shipping refund processing for Mm -hmm. a lot of large uh, shipping companies here around the United States and internationally. Uh, After that, you went on and you built a shipping and rating system for LTL truck companies. Mm -hmm. You are what I would consider to be, you know, a serial hobbyist in your early days, and it turned into a very successful career. Would that be an accurate statement? Yes. I was I was lucky enough to be able to be doing the stuff I love and get paid for it, even if uh, the, the same stuff I would have been doing without getting paid for it, just finding somebody to pay me. Uh, and that worked out really well for a <laughs> okay. while. Okay. So talk to us about, you know, let's go through the 90s and 2000s here. Let's mm-hmm. lead into that professional career because a lot of folks in that position are not classically trained mm-hmm. in the traditional sense where one would go to college or engineering school or things of that nature. How did Nicholas Loki Jacobson <laughs> get to this point in life? And how did you kind of realize that you were really interested in computer programming and in software development? And well, how did you foster that talent? Ironically, it did start with a classical education. But I mean a real classical education. I was homeschooled and uh, had to go ahead and learn the classics, the humanities. Uh, that included learning translation level Greek and Latin. Oh, yeah. Okay. That me- comes in handy. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh. 
<laughs> and if you don't speak Greek and, Greek and Latin, I mean, we just don't have much in common. Right. I mean, yeah. I got to reply to clients daily in Latin. <laughs> yeah, straight up. Uh, yeah, completely useless unless you're trying to understand the history of uh, sort of the use of language and also a lot of philosophy stuff. Or if you want to be a doctor. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or a specialist of romance languages, I guess. Sure, whatever. Uh, so, but I was homeschooled and part of that was a lot of self-direction from an early age where I was basically told, well, learn about math today. Here's a book. I also absolutely, I was, I had difficulty with writing because I was uh, ambidextrous. I hadn't decided on a hand and that made it difficult to do handwriting. What age was this? 17. 12, 13. (laughs) So you remember being, you know, articulate with both hands. Is that articulate or no, dexterous? Dexterous was, with both hands. I wasn't, de- both I, I yeah, wasn't really dexterous with both hands. That was the problem. Okay. Uh, handwriting caused problems for me. And so very early on, like it caused my hands to cramp. It caused pain. I would, would avoid writing as much as possible. So very, very early on, my mother's solution to this was, here's a crappy computer type. <laughs> okay. it, wor- it worked great. There's my computer. Uh, so with that, it also got me a little bit more into having a computer around, which we'd already had a little bit for uh, the business that she ran, um, selling educational books mm-hmm. and doing homeschool testing. But having that around really led into, oh, now I have this. There's a modem. There's a BBS locally. What can I do? From then on, most of my extra time. Also, we lived in the we lived out in the country with nothing around us, and there was nothing else to do at all. Besides be outside or be on the computer. So most of my time was spent on the computer. Sure. Uh, Outside's hot sometimes, man. It's Oregon. It's just dreary. <laughs> where, where was this again? Uh, this or- was in Southern Oregon. Okay, Southern Oregon. Yeah. So this is where, did Rambo come through your town? You'd think so sometimes. Okay. Yeah. It was, it was definitely podunk town. Okay. So uh, you met Rambo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no. Though there was Tree Arrow. He he actually, and it's funny, he actually did come through town quite often. I did meet the guy. He he was later charged with a bunch of uh, environmental terrorism stuff in Oregon. He oh, was no he bueno. was He's the equivalent of Rambo for Southern Oregon. Awesome. Yeah, right? Uh, so having the computer, like, it led into learning how, what else I can use it for. Got me in a little bit of trouble here and there uh, with the local college a little bit uh, when they wanted to go and see what else was on the network. So tell us about that. I mean, why don't you get, in, get into some details? So I was going to the community college. The high school didn't have any class, local high school didn't have any classes uh, that I hadn't already tested out of. And so they were paying to send me to the community college at 16. Good score. Right? Worked for me. Like my sister's sort of doing the same thing right now. Yeah. So while there, one of the classes we took was networking. Uh, well, series of classes. At the time, that was Novell Networking, which most people today probably have never even seen. Uh, before Microsoft was, basically, before even Microsoft Networking really became a big thing, they were using Novell Network. Mm-hmm. Terrible, terrible system. But eh, I wanted to see what I could do. So I'm sitting down with one of the junior admins and we're playing around on the network. And the next day, the senior admin looks through a bunch of logs and sees a bunch of, like, random accesses to stuff and <laughs> sort of loses his shit. <laughs> and the junior is like, well, I didn't know what he was doing. It's like, dude, you're sitting right next to me laughing at me as we do this. So, so is this like 99, 2000? Yeah, this, this was like uh, 98, 99. All right, right Yeah. On. 
that was, you know, and then I got out of Rosberg shortly after that. Um, that was the scripting engine to try to get refunds. Sure. I had been, I had been communicating with a guy doing a little bit of consulting on that project, uh, that I just run, I had ran into him online. Uh, and you're and, in high school at this point. Yeah. Well, sort of. I mean, I, I was not in high school cause I had already got my GED. Okay. I was at the community college. Okay. Um, but so I went ahead and was talking to this guy and basically he got funding to start up a company to do this because he was just doing it himself as a small thing. Then it spun up into a small company that he actually got funding for. And he's like, do you want to come down to California and work for us? And I'm like, yeah, what? 19 going, Hmm. Job or keep going to college that I really don't like that isn't teaching me much that I need to actually know right now. And I went for the job and I don't regret it at all. Uh, I'd still like somebody to get my degree, but, at this point, who knows? So went down to California, worked on this. It actually spun up into a pretty decent-sized company pretty quickly. Um, and then it got bought out by another shipping firm. Okay. But while down, the, it, that's where it transitioned into doing the shipping and rating engine as well. Okay. So... So when you're going through, uh, you know, your, your day-to-day life, and I mean, you're, you're a 19-year-old guy mm-hmm. moving from... Rural Oregon, yep. down into California, mm-hmm. and you know you're now working for this organization. And it, I could not imagine at 19 years old, kind of being thrust into professional life. I was. <laughs> that's all of El Toro. <laughs> I was. I was. I was more. Make, it's more. I mean, that's my my sister's 19, sitting down there right now. Are you serious? Your sister's 19? Yeah. I mean, I knew she was your sister, but I yeah. had no idea she was 19 years mm-hmm. old. I mean, she's a she's a star, man. Yeah. Hell so. of a developer. Um, so that's fantastic. But yeah, I, I couldn't imagine, you know, taking on responsibility where other people need me to fulfill my cog to make sure that families get paid to eat. You know what I mean? I, I do, but it never struck me that way because growing up, my entire family basically, it didn't matter how old you were, you were doing something. I think my uncle was like 14 when he was going around putting flyers on cars and getting paid for it to bring home money. So that's where you established your work. Yeah, it was, it's like, it's not about working really hard. It's just about, you should be doing something with your time that's productive. Hopefully that, you know, brings in some extra money. But if not, at least be productive so that you can look at it as experience or something like that. Yeah. It didn't seem that, it didn't seem like a big deal. Yeah. It was just, ah, you're going to pay me to come down to California. Okay. (laughs) Cool. Yeah, I'll move to sunny California. (laughs) Hello, Irvine. It, it It was Orange County, like. There was nothing not to not to like about that. Yeah, buddy, I'll take that. So you went through this early job, and now we're here in the early two thousands. We're probably no. talking about two thousand one, two thousand two, about two thousand two. Yeah. All right, all right. So take me forward into I guess you you divulge from that, and you move into you know your shipping and rating system yep. and LTL. Same trucking. company. We we started developing this on request from some clients of the refund engine. And we basically went ahead and developed a entire uh, rating comparison engine. So they would just say, here's where I need to get my package. Here's the specs on it, the size, how much it weighs. Here's my custom rates because every single one of these people had different custom negotiated rates with UPS or FedEx or the LTL carriers. So it's a nightmare pricing system is what you're yes. saying. 
So they needed to be able to very quickly go ahead, compare how they should ship it. And maybe they had uh, a price versus time type of uh, fall off so that if it was cheap enough, but it took longer, that was okay. Maybe they had a hard deadline for when it had to get there by. And the system basically took those rules in, figured out what the cheapest way to ship it was, and shipped it. Hmm. Printed out the label, slapped it on, sent all the information to the shipping company. Today, there's a bunch of services that do that sort of thing. Even though not as many that deal with LTL as well. Sure. Um, and LTL is less than truckload for those of us, the, the, for those listening that haven't heard that term. Basically, it means you only get like, you, you only have enough stuff to fill one pallet on a truckload. And so you only pay for part of the truck and other people fill up the rest of it. And nobody else was competing with us. It was great. Everybody likes that. I right? Mean, mm-hmm. You can name your price. And we were saving them money. And I, I think our billing was actually based upon the general differential to, on what they saved versus if they had just gone with their traditional uh, billing amounts. That's interesting pricing right there. Yeah, so you had a variable rate that would come into you based upon the savings of the client. Yeah, which was the same way we worked with the original <clears throat> uh, product of uh, the refund system. That's that's skin in the game right there. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah. So from a curiosity standpoint, what it, it, let's say you saved them 40%. Mm-hmm. How much would you guys take? 50%. Of whatever half the savings, yeah, damn, that's not bad. So in some cases, and that also came down to who would choose as a client. Okay, is if we couldn't save them much money, we're probably not really working with them much. But if we can, it's worth it for them and for us. So do you guys have pretty good sales direction at that organization? I mean, it's you got to have a pretty decent salesperson to know that, hey. You're a waste of my time, but you, on the other hand, let's go out to a fancy dinner. Right. We had – we the owner of the company was somebody who had been in the shipping industry for pretty much his entire life, and the right. guy was in his 70s. Yeah, he definitely had the Got relationships it. that he could just walk in and be like, yeah, here, I can save you money. Here, I can prove I can save you money. You want to do business? Word. So, all right, now we're in the early 2000s, and you gained a little bit of notoriety here in 0405. Tell us about the situations that introduced you to the Secret Service um, and some of the legal representatives for an organization called T-Mobile. Yeah. So as we're getting into 2004, a lot of the stuff at the company I was working for was getting boring because it had all been solved. At this point, like, I wasn't even doing very much maintenance mode stuff. And I was bored very bored. When you're a cat and you're bored, it's never a good thing. <laughs> okay. Idle hands. <laughs> and so I was I was exploring the dark web, which at the time was very young. Uh, you know, we we had some some sites that weren't even on the dark web at the time that today that's the only place you're going to find them. Uh, and most of what I was looking at was interest in like, ah, hey, how do you make fake IDs, stuff like that, which I'd always had a small interest in, uh, mostly not using the fake ID even as much as, hey, it's really cool that I can make something that looks that good. Yeah. And part of my interest was I had a friend who was actually caught from making IDs so good that the Oregon DMV later asked him to come in and counsel them on how to make them better. <laughs> interesting. Um, I had a buddy who, who ended up in the same situation. You know, yeah. we're the same age, so it, it's interesting that that happens in multiple areas mm-hmm. around the country because in like 2001, 2002, 
uh, in Paducah, there was a young man who got raided by the FBI and ended up consulting with uh, the DMV with respect to fake identification. Yeah. But, Anywho, sorry, and I digress. Go ahead. No, and the funny thing is, is at the time, one of the things that I was doing was running <clears throat> servers containing lots of hacker files. Think of it as BB, it, old BBS systems that contained all the files you might want, all the information you want. Sure. But now is being run as FTP. So you're basically the server admin for a bunch of hackers. Yes, basically, it, <laughs> it's it, it, it's like hell? having it's like it's like having a. Uh, Mega, uh, mega upload, mega. Uh, yeah, 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 they yeah, got yeah. shut down. It's like having that, but it's FTP server way back when. So, so somebody basically came up to you and said, "Hey, Loki, um, here's the keys to my gun safe. I got about a hundred G's in silver down in the bottom, but nobody's ever gonna buy that. I mean, unless you're really needing some silver right now, just keep an eye on it. There's, <laughs> you know, there's all this other stuff in the safe, but don't worry about any of that jive. I mean." Here's the here's the code just in case I get hit by a bus. You've it got was, it. It was mostly I had server space and I was hanging out on these IRC channels. IRC was the thing back then to be on if you want to communicate with people in the more underground area. And why? It's just a, a secure chat area, right? It wasn't secure at all. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> they, they, they came out in the article. <laughs> sure shit. But uh, it was it was internet relay chat was just the way that you hung out on channels and chat and just had conversations with other people at the time. That was really what was available if you didn't want to use, say, AOL groups. There was lots of files floating around, and I started out just downloading every single one that came down, came around, so I had an archive of them. Then I started, you know, sharing them to other people. W the point of this was the, the chances are your friend who got caught probably was accessing my very large directory of uh, fake ID templates. Um, but so I was a little bit involved and mostly it was either the hosting type thing or sometimes it was doing custom coding for people, um, writing custom embedded web servers, things like that, customizing some remote access uh, tools. So, I mean, you, you make it kind of sound like Fiverr to be honest with you, but like a, a pre-version of a site like Fiverr, hey, I need some coding help. Some of that was, yeah. Can you execute this process? Yeah, really, five it's, bucks. it's no different than any other services, except I knew that the people who were asking for the services were very shady. Thousand percent markup? Whatever. Right. <laughs> I was spending, so I was spending a lot of time on that, and I was also spending a lot of time just looking at what new security flaws were coming out and who was vulnerable, and one day, so I'm going along, there's this new flaw, and it's a really easy-to-exploit web server flaw. And uh, I'm like, hmm, I could have sworn that I saw that this other company was using that web server, and sure enough, check it out. Here's a T-Mobile server running that is vulnerable to this exploit. How, how old was this vulnerability? And I mean, you know, in the world of, you know, software... Six months. So it was mm -hmm. a vulnerability that had been discovered six months prior. Yeah. And they had just not... They never patched it. And, I, like, I kept using that same vulnerability for two-plus years, and they still hadn't patched Did it. Did these people know about it? Did they at the time? Yeah. Uh, they should have. I mean, should have, like, should somebody have told being, them? Should, should have, have... Should have, meaning they were... It was a paid, licensed software from the company. So, from... It was, it was WebSphere, was the server at the time. Okay. And it's a Java application server. And, but basically, think of it like a web server. They were paying a license fee, and sure as shit, if they're paying a license fee, they're getting notifications of new vulnerabilities. Yeah, exactly. 
So yes, they knew about it, they just never patched it. That was my entry into, after a lot of work, having control of their Oracle servers. Oh. And so once I have control of their <laughs> Oracle servers, I pretty much have the keys to the kingdom. Yeah. Uh, and throughout that time, they never knew anything was wrong. In fact, T-Mobile never found out anything was wrong until much later, because one of the things I found was originally, it's like, oh, hey, I have access to all this interesting data, call logs, text messages, stuff like that. Man, let's run some celebrities. Oh, that's cool, but that's not actually that interesting. And then I found at the time they had released this thing called a T-Mobile Sidekick. And the T-Mobile Sidekick, <laughs> think of it as the iPhone of the period. Dude, I, I remember the T-Mobile Sidekick. I remember people just being like wickedly impressed yep. by this little touchpad that the screen folds up. It's and like I mean, a Blackberry for celebrities. Every celebrity had one. Yeah. Like Ashton you Kutcher. couldn't, you couldn't. Speaking of Ashton Kutcher and Demi Moore, Paris anyway. Hilton. No and way. Paris Hilton. So this was like the Beats by Dre. Yes. Before. Very much so. I mean, you think about yeah. that, that, that was, that was it. So the interesting thing about the T-Mobile sidekicks that was sort of new and hadn't, and you'd, you'd never really seen it before was all the data that was on the T-Mobile sidekick including photos, messages, email, was actually stored in the cloud. That's safe. It was stored in T-Mobile's, <laughs> well, technically, the, the Sidekick company's servers. And I found that if I had, base, the, the, the way to access the servers was a, a private key that, had, that signed basically your access credentials. But by having access to T-Mobile's servers, I had that private key. Mm -hmm. So if I knew, basically, if I knew the phone number of the device, I could access all the data. Oh, good Lord. So that's, that was the key? Yeah. No, no, no. The phone number plus the private, in, private oh, key. okay. So okay, I could okay. encrypt it with the private key, and then I'd have access. Okay. And that was the actual, like, credential I needed. No, it wasn't just a phone number. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, T wait, I'm going to add, though, T-Mobile still has a flaw. That's absolutely amazing and involves their phone systems. And they've uh -oh. had this for, since I was if, over 15 years. Let's go with that. And that is that if you do not set a password on your voicemail and you're a T-Mobile client and somebody calls your phone number with setting their caller ID to your phone number. Oh, man. It immediately drops, the, drops them into your voicemail and lets them listen to your voicemail Shut messages. Shut Still works. Oh, shit. You, now you just got to find somebody who uses T-Mobile. I know, right? And doesn't set a voicemail password. <laughs> I don't use T-Mobile. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and you got to be able to spoof your phone number and stuff. But sure. it's it's sort of interesting that there's vulnerabilities like that that have been known about for 15 years, and they're just not worth fixing. Well, I mean, it's T-Mobile, man. It's T-Mobile, hey. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the celebrities were okay, but I, I wasn't really that interested in it at the time, and I didn't pay much attention until as I was going through stuff, I did a search on any email addresses registered that were .gov. Why, why, why wouldn't you? I mean, got <laughs> right? to. That's a smart, it's a smart idea, totally. And <laughs> I came up with a bunch of them, and then I noticed there's this whole list of USSS addresses, United States Secret Service. It's like, that's interesting. Dun, dun, dun. Did Let's some more looking at bear. it. Let's poke all of bear. Let's poke All of them had T-Mobile sidekicks. It's this tactile feedback on the right. keyboard. It's brilliant. And 
Sure He's enough, a numpad like a chump. They were all out of the same <laughs> division of the Secret Service, cybercrime division out of New, out of New Jersey. Ah, uh, there's your problem, New Jersey. <laughs> yeah, because that's that's definitely where we need to save our super secret files on the public server. So they had policies. They weren't supposed to send any sensitive information over it or anything like that. Sure. And I, I, ba- I mostly just sat there, watched some stuff once in a while, didn't didn't do anything. Really, that to really look at that much until one day I'm, ran, I'm reading these random text messages that are coming across between all of them, and I see the name of somebody that I know from online, but I see their real name, which I also happen to know, and it says that they're serving a search warrant on him. And so I let him know, and this again was somebody I knew offline. It's like, hey, they're looking into you. They have a search warrant for one of your accounts. You know, you should be aware of it. They they served it on him. He had a little bit of warning. So, you know, there was no data in the account anymore, stuff like that. But then he's like, hey, look for these names too. And so I just keep an eye out. And one day one of those comes across. Unfortunately, what it turned out was the person that was being investigated by the cybercrime division of the Secret Service was actually an informant for one of the financial crime divisions of the Secret Service. So when he's when this guy's informed that he's being investigated by through this friend of mine that I let know, he freaks and tells his Secret Service handler, who freaks because they're very well placed informant. This guy ran a bunch of uh, carding forums online, so sure. he was he was a really big name in a lot of the um, credit card fraud. Okay. Stuff online. And so his handler freaks out and the Secret Service people get together and go, what the fuck? How did this happen? And they figure out that, you know, somebody must have been reading the messages. Let's, you know, they have a mole somewhere. Loki. Damn it. <laughs> so uh, lesson learned, don't trust people. But lesson learned, don't do this. But... Yeah, and you should have said and, <laughs> and not do but it. and. <laughs> uh, so that sort of came to a head, and it was also at the same time that they were doing a very large investigation of a lot of online fraud stuff. Yeah. So they did a huge bust of, I think, fifty plus people. Uh, I think it was called Operation Firewall. Yep, mm-hmm. I'm actually looking at the and article right there. I that wasn't, is correct. I was not in <laughs> that actual bust, but the same time and like down to the same day that they busted all the rest of them. What was interesting about some of the information that came out with respect to your arrest is that they were very, very, very quiet and there's a about reason. the information as to why you were arrested, yep. and they were very, very public with respect to why yep. they arrested <laughs> all of these other deviants. And there's sort of two reasons. One... They did not want to have to publicly come out with them having basically had a mole in their network for two years. Yeah. They didn't want to have to get rid of their sidekicks because they're pretty cool. I mean, everybody. I use a sidekick today. (laughs) The second reason was because. Camera's too good. They were interested in what what other information I might have. They thought I might have more information, thought I might be able to be basically willing to be an informant. No, it's just the idiots at the cybercrime division. Right? Edit that out. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> turn up the gain on Edit that, that one, one out. <laughs> Putting that at the beginning of the episode. So 
at that point, yeah, they went ahead. They came after me. You know, they raided my. They followed me around for I guess two days, and then they just showed up with a search warrant and like, hey, and I'm just like, well, shit. All right, so hold up. <laughs> Did you see the people following? No, that I car's didn't. following me. I didn't. Keep your head on a swivel. And man. I was and I was driving a shitty old pickup truck that had to be not very much fun to follow. Damn. Like like on Goodfellas, you're watching the helicopters in the sky. <laughs> hey, Teresa, I swear they're following. Me. <laughs> I, I I can barely see where this truck's going. The exhaust is too janky. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> this truck shouldn't be in Portland. <laughs> uh, this was in Orange County at the time. Okay. Yeah, okay. Well, this guy acceptable. isn't very eco conscious. Definitely. Yuck. Is this a diesel? <laughs> So, at that point, when they went ahead, served the search warrant, it was probably less than a week till they had me sit down with what they called a proffer session, which basically an interview. And they're like, hey, this is what we got on you. My response was, okay, you have me. (laughs) It's like, you guys are feds and I see what you have on me. Cool. What can I do for you? <laughs> I'm not even going to bother to fight this. I'm at your service. <laughs> uh, and it came, you know, they're like, well, what about, do you know these people? What can you tell us about these people? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know anything about anybody, which I really didn't no. on purpose. Now, on the other hand, I was perfectly happy to tell them absolutely every single thing I did because they offered me a really good deal. And it was good for them and for me. One of their big concerns was what else I might have had access to either while I was in their network or other networks. And mm-hmm. there were other networks I was involved in, including ones that had access to every single driver's license in all of California, Alaska, Idaho, and Oregon. And, mm-hmm. you know, things like the back then the jail system doors were directly controlled from a uh, at one of the Oregon penitentiaries were directly controlled from a computer that was on the internet. Oh, wow. Yeah, That's, you know, things like that. Just jail it's good that It's good that corporate-sponsored government institutions don't have to play by the rules, one, and two, you know, can just ignore these blatant security right. vulnerabilities. It's a good idea that corporations have control over the prison system, Private right? prisons. Right? Profit centers? <laughs> don't say that. Don't say that. <laughs> edit, labor? edit that out. No, edit I said, are out. they advertising with us? <laughs> <laughs> no. If they are, then we're going to edit that out. <laughs> yeah. we'll see about if that. they aren't, we're never getting that job. <laughs> Nobody checks these podcasts before they go out. Put your people in prison here. <laughs> so they, they sat me down and just asked me a bunch of questions about what else I had done. And in exchange, they went ahead and gave me a really good plea deal. And the condition was that I tell them everything I had done. So I took it as an opportunity to basically get every single little tiny computer-related thing I had ever done off my chest. You got your shit straight. <laughs> basically. That's a genius idea right there. They're giving me the opportunity. Immunity? Yeah, as long as I tell them I have immunity from prosecution for these, for everything I tell them about. That's how clueless. That that is exactly how clueless they were at the time. They weren't even clueless. They wanted to know what was vulnerable, and they wanted me to go away quietly, but still be able to say that they had made an example of me. I was responsible. part of the reason was the West Coast wanted to bring me on as an informant. They wanted to... Basically hire me, not Mm. just as an informant, but hire me as a consultant consultant slash informant, yeah. The East Coast, which is the ones that that were vulnerable that I had actually gotten into, I guess there was some political infighting. And the East Coast (laughs) is like, hell no. And the West Coast is like, but we sort of want them. And the East Coast is, hell no. So it ended up with, I got the deal. I didn't end up doing any sort of consulting, any sort of uh, informant type stuff. Their loss. 
eh, I was happy all around. Uh, but I did. They did make an example. I had I had a year of house arrest and five years of probation. Oh man, they taught you. They taught you to stay inside and work on the computer. I wasn't allowed to have a computer for anything except for work purposes for five years. What do you do inside? Did you hear the caveat that I convinced that I convinced the judge to put in? No. For anything other than work purposes. His work is on the computer, Stadler. I mean, I get that. So I, I, I just I, found <laughs> about about three months after the sentencing and all that, um, and they gave me a few months to like settle down before I went on house arrest. Through a friend of a friend, I found a job on the coast that they're a consulting company um, on the Oregon coast that really needed somebody good but couldn't afford very to pay very much. And it was a small town, really like I liked it. It was living like on the ocean. Sure. And the key thing for me was, oh, my boss did not care what I did. His answer was always, it's work. So everything I did on the computer was work-related. Nice. And our clients were, a lot of our clients were government clients, so that if my PO was ever asking to look at the computer, my boss would just be, I'm sorry, that data's confidential. Legitimately confidential. You can't look at it. Yeah. If you want to look at it, you can go to these organizations and get permission from them. Yeah. And that's not going to happen. Well, I mean, you're saying that the government's not good at sharing information among other agents? (laughs) Especially not when it's a state agency versus a federal agency. Oh, man. I mean, they get along great, right? Sure they do. (laughs) There's a longstanding history Especially small towns, small town law enforcement agencies. so, dude, that's that's crazy. That's yeah. that's that's a, a that's a little bit more detail than I've ever heard with respect to this story. And and we've that's okay. You can edit most of it out. We've known each other for <laughs> a couple of years now. I mean, we're gonna edit out the nasty. There's stuff. gonna be like thirty seconds. <laughs> in the we can edit this out. We <laughs> might have deep. to have some additional scrutiny of this one before we let we'll it see. out. But that's we'll all see. good, man. I don't care. So yeah, you're not gonna read that on the internet. So, man, this is seriously the next question that comes up in my <laughs> freaking list here. Um, so, so what fascinates you about coding? <laughs> huh. What you can do with it. <laughs> All right. All right. Let's, let's you can do whatever you want, apparently. Let's get into something a little bit more productive. If, yeah. if someone wants to get into software architecture and... and Security infrastructure research. How would you recommend them going about it? I mean, seriously, yeah. I mean, because there's a lot of people out there that are like, you know, coding's the answer for my career path. Mm-hmm. And we see a lot of it, uh, you know, here locally. Um, we've got some coding programs here that we, we, we actually hire quite a few yeah. employees from. Code Louisville. And good, good employees. And exactly. we also get a lot of people who, it's a second career. Oh, it's, for sure. You know, they, they go ahead and it's like, oh, well, I'm going to try this and it works for them and they're great. I would, I would say that the path, and it's a really good question because it's an important question for a lot of people. The path very much depends on the person themselves and what their skill set is and their interests are. I think a lot of people just have a goal of, unfortunately, a lot of people just have a goal of, I want to get into tech because that seems like a good <laughs> thing to be in. Uh, I hear there's good wages in it. Those and, guys wear t-shirts. Right. And okay, yeah, there's actually a lot of truth to that. But that doesn't mean that you should necessarily go for being a coder. Sure. There's lots of things you can do and still be in the tech world. If you are interested in working with computers, automating things, you sort of have two main paths. And luckily, they're, they're easier than they are today. Well, I'd say three. You can go your own. 
which is basically what I did, and get hired by a company or start your start your own company, start a small side project that gets picked but up. That's the only avenue that existed until not the only avenue. I mean, the other one was the traditional university route. Okay. So those those two have always been around. I think these days the do it the complete bootstrap do it yourself is a little bit more difficult because there's so many more people trying to get into the field. Mm-hmm. And it's also, it's hard to prove. On the other hand, you know, with GitHub, you can easily, I got an open source project. I got 50,000 people using my project. Do you want to hire me? Okay, now I get to look at your code and I know that the code's decent. Yeah. That's sort of a no-brainer at that point. But until you build up to that, if you haven't been working on it, that doesn't work very well. Or if you work on things that aren't easily displayed to other people or that people can't just look at and get a grasp of how, of like what your skill set is. It also doesn't, talk about your, say, social skill set, which is, even today, very important to be working in a, in a traditional environment. The new thing that's come about is code schools, and we didn't really used to have those available. The code schools are a really good way not just to learn something, but to see if it's going to fit you, because they really are focused on not just teaching you how to code, but most of them are also focused on making sure that you land a good job afterward and that you stay in that first period of time because that's how they're rated. Do you see that like code schools are kind of a maturation of hackerspaces? Because in 04, 05, 06, you know, 07, and, and a little bit farther beyond there, there were a lot of hackerspaces that existed, especially mm-hmm. out in the left coast, you know, out in Seattle, out in Portland, yeah. different areas like that. Well, and the East Coast actually has some of the best ones. Um, San Francisco had a good one, but yeah, New York City has had um, an amazing one for years. Like yes and no. You will find a bit of everybody at a code school, whereas hackerspaces really were always intended more for they really don't fit in type of people. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ones who are thinking completely outside the box, they don't fit in, they want to work on projects, whatever. Whereas a code school, you can be you can be just transitioning from one type of job for, to another, which is a very common one. You already have four or five years under your belt of experience in an industry, in a work, in a, you know, office work environment, but you're not liking what you're doing or you're not finding it exciting. You go to a code school and you switch career paths. I, I see that as a little bit more common. Okay. And, you know, that's just what I've seen. I have no idea what the statistics on that are. Sure. Who needs statistics anyway? Uh, Come on. I'd also say that universities <laughs> have done a really good job of creating better degree paths Yeah. for people who want to go into computer science, the software side versus the hardware side, stuff like that. It's no longer as important to get your, you know, com- your computer science degree to become a programmer when... If you're not working with algorithms or, hey, you want to be a user experience designer, do you really need to go learn how to develop a microchip? Probably not. And it's a different skill set. How easy was it to exploit the whole hacking thing in 2003? We talking like 10 lines of code? We talking like 15 lines of code? It was actually about 10 lines of code. Shut the... To actually get to get through the door. Now, once I got through the door, yeah, I I still had to like develop a shell that would allow me to... But it's sort of like an admin tool that would allow me to do a lot of stuff that otherwise would be very difficult. But to actually get in and gain control was about 10 lines of code. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. It was, it was a post request. How simple it really is. Why don't you look at that fake-looking rock over there and just grab the key out <laughs> of it? And I actually, I actually keep a fake-looking rock outside of my house, and I got a little note written inside it. Fuck you. Yeah, but you still, <laughs> like, but you still, you still gave him a key by putting a rock right there. 
I mean, no, 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 it's plastic. I mean, there's tons of rocks outside. Okay. I'm sure they could. <laughs> there's, there's no key. You could there. definitely pick no, a brick. No, the key up. is the rock. Yeah, the key uh, is the rock. Yeah. I, li- I you like got that windows, kind of don't it's, you? Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a master key. <laughs> yeah. well, I mean, so that was only it was only ten lines, and of course, from back in the early 2000s to now to, to nowadays, I mean, companies are going to update quicker. You're not going to have that. Too- so nope. not true. Oh, the the big the big attack surface that you have now that didn't used to exist as much is the what they call the IoT Internet of Things, mm-hmm. and companies buy networking devices and stuff like that that sometimes essentially not updatable, or the company that they buy them from goes out of business or just doesn't release updates. Perfect example is the cell phone in your pocket. If you do not have like a Nexus, if you have um, some off-brand Android phone, mm-hmm. chances are you're running an OS that's two plus years old because Google's released OS updates, but the manufacturers of the phones don't don't actually push those out. And you better believe that an Android, like an Android 6 or something, uh, OS version, mm-hmm. can be exploited so many different ways. Uh-oh, you better buy that Pixel. <laughs> better buy that Pixel 3. That Pixel out. 3. Google. Did you have Google. stock in that? <laughs> <laughs> we need sponsors, Google. Just putting that out there. Yeah, they're not a sponsor but they could be. <laughs> so we talked about how easy it is to exploit. Are there any things that companies, both large and small, anything they can do to make themselves a little bit more secure? Besides hiring consultants, and it's hard to figure out who to hire. <laughs> yeah. um, the big one is reducing attack surface, which means sort of risk balancing and reducing attack surface. So reducing attack surface means having a minimum number of points of entry for somebody to attack. Do you have printers on your network? Great. Don't give your printers public IP addresses. That's just a bad idea. <laughs> you know, that sort of basic level of stuff makes a big difference. You have Wi-Fi access points. Okay, well, maybe your Wi-Fi access points should actually be secured. Maybe they should be on a separate network than your financial transactions. Mm-hmm. Oh, that would be wise. Yeah. Right? But it's just not convenient to put everything hey. in. So a lot of that is the type of stuff that does matter. Um, beyond that, really all you can do is try to have somebody on staff who has some awareness of it and try not to give too much pushback against the uh, sort of pain points that it, that being secure can cause. And it's always a balance between how secure, what is your risk versus how much does your mitigation cause business problems mm-hmm. or, or financial it's problems. Practicality, right. portability. And what to protect against. Uh, you know, there's the old thing about running away from the bear in the forest and you're stopping to put on your shoes. And the guy next to you goes, what are you doing that for? You can't outrun the bear even if you're wearing shoes. And you go, yeah, but I don't got to. I only got to outrun you. <laughs> Rest assured, I'm not asking anybody any questions. No, no, so no, no, no. I'll push you all, down. Yeah, it's, you just got to be faster than the next guy. So you don't, so in, the, in, you know, in business, you don't need to be the most secure person out there. You just have to be more secure than the other targets that might be more mm. attractive than you. Just don't be an easy target. Right. So, so you could say that also, even in the age where we're signing terms of agreements or uh, pretty much anything, giving all our contacts or email contacts mm-hmm. to get a convenience uh, or a service, that also applies to the individual level as well. It does. Um, that's, a, that's a different discussion, privacy discussion, but it, it still does. And you still, have a, you still have some level of mitigation you can do in terms of who you're giving your information to. The Facebooks of the world, probably a little bit safer than that site that promised to give you a free Bitcoin if you give them your email address. 
But Bitcoin's so expensive. I know. Right now. Oh my gosh. I wish I had a Bitcoin. <laughs> so pretty much the only way to be complete well, no, I can't say can't say completely secure, but uh, the most secure is to hire a consultant or an on staff person. What about people who you can't necessarily afford that, but maybe they can outsource? Is that an option? Yeah, so that's sort of the same as a consultant. Um that really is outsourcing to somebody. Honestly, if you're big enough to even have a network admin, having them get a basic level of understanding um, or bringing in somebody to give an overview and then a bit of training to that admin on how to approach your specific security problems is a good way to do it. Um, sending them to some basic boot camps uh, if they're not already familiar with some security basics can be another good one. But there's a lot of services out there offering relatively inexpensive consultant consultancy programs for catching the low-hanging low fruit. Because, again, you don't have to be secure. You just have to be more secure than the next guy. Mm -hmm. Just wrap up loose ends. Would you consider yourself a hacker? Yes. Or, okay. I was going to go with former hacker, but let's go. No, let's go no. Still, in the, still. Way I, in the way I think, the way I approach problems... Uh, hacker has never been about doing illegal things. Let's no, figure or, out how things work. Right. right. The original hackers were the MIT model train team. Like, no joke, those were the hackers. Uh, that then developed into everything we think of hackers today. Mm -hmm. If you, if you want to be secure, you should hire somebody that wants to figure out how these things work, these, these quote-unquote hackers. As a company, yeah. If you want to be secure as an individual, I think everybody should have some of that mindset. It's a mindset mm -hmm. of skepticism. All right. Well, All Nicholas right. Loki Jacobson. You're just going to start the episode with like that being on repeat for five minutes. Pretty much. I yeah. probably will. I mean, you know, put a little beat behind it. I dig it. But man, thank you so much for kind of sitting down with us today. I know we probably took away some of your time where you could have been working, but uh, We're, that's your problem, a, not mine. A yeah, little less secure problem. right now. Okay. Uh, that's all right, too. But man, we really appreciate it. And. You know, maybe next time we can go down some other rabbit holes with you. All the rabbit um, holes. All of Speaking the rabbit holes. Don't we still have some rabbit hole bourbon? Oh, we had it. We it's had gone. it. It's we drank all of it. <laughs> that was Oregon. the best. That was the best one I ever. I, think. It goes. Uh, yeah. It goes back to the philosophy of you know, is it better to be able to observe this art in real time, or is it better to be able to tell the story of how that art tastes? Well, that depends if you're the ones who tasted it, or they were one who's <laughs> telling the other person who hasn't tasted it in a long time. As the person who's <laughs> tasted it, <laughs> that's what I'd prefer. Oh. <laughs> I have a very significant reference point of. How, how's it feel to be the other side of that? <laughs> so when are you buying me that bottle of... Uh... <laughs> oh, so, so we can put a nice little bow on this episode. Uh, we've got next week coming up... Craig Stevenson. Oh, Craig Stevenson's coming next week? Yeah. PR Wizard. Craig Stevenson coming at you from, from the eltoro.com pod. The yes. Craig Stevenson. I dig it. He's going to be a really good time. We're going to work on our margarita recipes. Oh, I'll definitely put those two together. Yeah, we are margaritas. Fortaleza. Oh, uh, dude, I've got that's why that's one of the reasons why I bought the Fortaleza for next week is because I have the most impeccable margarita recipe you will ever taste. Oh, I think time will tell on next episode week. Episode twelve. This is episode eleven with Lucky. Thank you so much. You've been listening to the Straight from the Bull podcast from El Toro Studios, brought to you by ElToro.com, where we target people, not pixels. <laughs>